Thanks, Brian. I always feel like after baptisms, the um, servant, sermon's sort of irrelevant. We could just go home. That, what, that is the story, right? <clears throat> but I went all, to all the trouble of writing this message, so I feel like I should probably at least go through with it. You guys good with that? Okay with that? All right. <laughs> so here's the... <laughs> Look at him, man. <laughs> wow. There's nothing like a vote of confidence from a friend before you do something hard. I love that. It's good. Um, I want to start with an observation, and, and it's this, uh, that in the study of human behavior, for a long time, experts have agreed there's two primary motivations that drive us. At the heart of who we are as human beings, we don't have to think about this. There are these two primary drives that move and motivate us. The drive to experience pleasure and the drive to avoid pain. I mean, this goes all the way back, all the way back to Epicurus, a philosopher who kind of came up with this philosophy about pursuing the good things in life. David Bentham, a philosopher, Freud, all of these experts have talked about these core motivations that we have as human beings that we don't have to think about. You don't even have to decide about this. We all are drawn to do things that are enjoyable and we are repelled away from or try to avoid things that are painful. That's why students... Just quick pop quiz, if you were given the option, you can play video games or you can do homework, which would you want to do? Homework, right? For sure. No, no, of course not. You don't even have to think about that. We don't even have to think about that because because we just know that we want to do the things that we enjoy. Now, as we get older, a part of maturity, a part of growing up is learning that we have to sometimes do the things that are painful or that we don't enjoy because in the long term, they're more beneficial. We need to do our homework because there's, there's benefits, there's value to doing that. So we learn that behavior, but it's, it's still that default behavior is still in us. We're still drawn to want to do things we enjoy and to avoid things that are painful. Now, this is partly why in our culture, and our society today, self-help is such a huge business. It's a $10 billion a year business in this country because people really want to know how, how can I make my life better and experience more pleasure, more good things, and how can I avoid the things that keep tripping me up? How do I avoid the things that cause me problems or difficulties? And it's appealing to this innate desire that's in us to want to experience more good things and avoid more bad things. If you scroll through the list of top-selling books, you're going to find lots of people promising you, self-help books that is, you're going to find lots of people promising you ways that you can learn to work less and earn more, to experience more fun in your life and in and experience less stress? Uh, How can you get more done and be more productive in less time? How can you experience your best life now? Your best life win? This is all hashtag winning, by the way. Like we want to win. We want to be successful and experience good things in life. And that's something that we're all interested in. And that's okay. That's a part of who we are as human beings. And there's a lot of stuff out there. I think there's a lot of self-help that is actually very beneficial. It is very helpful. There's a lot of things um, that, that actually can benefit us. But there are some things that aren't that helpful. In fact, what I would say maybe about it, maybe generously I would say this, that in, it tends to over-promise and under-deliver because it maximizes the possibility that you are in control of the circumstances of your life and you can orchestrate your life in such a way that you'll experience more pleasure and less pain. You might say that it's overly optimistic, 
Maybe more pessimistically, you might say that it's sensationalistic and downright misleading at times. And when it comes to health, self-help in general, whatever, I, I'm, I'm not that interested. I don't really pay that much attention to it. I've benefited from some stuff that have come out of the self-help genre, but in general, I don't really pay that much attention to it as a category, except for one particular kind of self-help. And it's the self-help where they pull God into their philosophy and where it becomes all about how if you just do things in the right way, God will give you an overcoming, overachieving life. And in this little you know, sphere, this little niche of self-help, there's one person who reigns supreme. Here's a little taste of what it looks like. Hi, I'm Joel Osteen. I'm excited about my new book, The Power of I Am, two words that can change your life today. When you say, I am strong, strength comes looking for you. I am blessed, blessings start tracking you down. Or I am unlucky, bad breaks start heading your way. I'll help you choose the right I am's so you can live a happy, healthy, successful life. I hope you'll pick up a copy for you and a friend. Okay, so maybe you're saying, Stephen, he didn't even mention God. All he was talking about is the power of being positive and about pursuing good things in life, right? Okay, fair enough. How about this one? One touch of God's favor can catapult you to the next level. Number one New York Times bestselling author, Joe Lowstein, delivers his new book, Next Level Thinking. You're about to take off to a new level and start rising higher. You'll see God promote you and take you to a new level of your destiny. I'll show you how to recognize any barrier that's holding you back so you can rise higher and become all you were created to be. Next Level Thinking. Available everywhere books are sold. Okay, so if you don't know this happy guy, his name is Joel Osteen. And he is a pastor at a very large church in Houston, Texas. And when I say large, 43,000 people a week. They meet in the, what used to be the Compact Center, which is where the Houston Rockets used to play basketball. It is this massive arena, and thousands and thousands of people come every single week. But not only that, they stream the messages online, and then they also record them and put them on television. Millions of people, literally millions of people every week, tune in and pay attention to what he has to say. On top of that, he's an author. He's written dozens of books, 10 of which have gone to number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. This guy's message is really appealing to people. And and I think the reason is because of what I was just talking about. I think he tells people what they really want to hear is that it's possible to avoid pain and to experience pleasure now. And more than that, he brings God in and he says that this is what God wants for you. It's an appealing message. It's appealing to this desire, this innate desire that's in us to experience pleasure and to avoid pain. And to be fair, I'm not beating up on Joel here. Just to be fair, he's not totally wrong. Not totally wrong. He is wrong, but he's not. (laughs) But he's not totally wrong. I believe that God does love you. I I believe that God does want the best for us. The problem is, I think Joel only tells part of the story. He's only given us part of the story. And the second part, the part that Joel seems to constantly leave out, I've never read any of his books. I've listened to a lot of his sermons and, and read some articles and watched interviews with him. And the thing that consistently gets left out is this part of the story of what it means to follow Jesus 
that comes from the story that we're going to look at today. And so if, if you're near, if, you've been, if you're just visiting with us today, um, we want you to know we're in a season called Lent, which is Lent is the period of time leading up to Easter. It's a 40-day 40, 40 period, not counting Sundays, uh, of preparation. And, and it's an invitation. It's, we, don't, we don't engage in Lent as an obligation that you have to give something up or you have to do these things. It's an invitation, an invitation to engage in practices and experiences that we think will help you engage more with the life of Jesus, to learn more about the importance of his life, his death, and his resurrection, but also to help you draw closer to God. And so whatever is helpful, we hope that you'll engage in that and be part of it. And as a part of that process, we've been reading through the book of Luke. Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life uh, called the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. So we've been reading through that during the week. Uh, and then on Sundays, we've been taking a look at a, at a particular story and zooming in to find out what we can learn about it. And so uh, last week, um, Dan took us through an incredible story that Luke tell. So Luke was not an eyewitness to these events. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He got to know the first followers of Jesus uh, after Jesus had ascended. And he was basically like a journalist. He was taking notes and copying down stories, pulling together all the information he could. And he was relayed this story that Dan talked about last week, which was amazing. This amazing story about Jesus and his first followers being caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus actually calmed the storm. And Dan did a great job of talking us through that last week. In fact, don't you guys think Dan should preach more often than once a year? <laughs> The people have spoken, bud. <laughs> All right, we'll work on that. So, so Dan did a great job of going through that and taking a look at that. So if you continue reading through Luke, what you, you, what you may have noticed is as, as we continued on from the story after this miraculous event where Jesus literally shows that he is able to control the forces of nature, it just keeps getting more and more amazing. More and more amazing and miraculous things happen. So, so Dan looked at this story where he calmed the storm, but from there he goes on and he heals a man that people believe to be possessed with a demon. So this is sort of showing Jesus has power over forces of darkness and of evil that, that people don't understand. Uh, from there he goes on and there's actually a, a servant who comes to him and says, hey, my, my, my master, his daughter is ill and, and she's near death. Can you please come? And during the time, uh, like, like while they're standing there talking, someone else comes up and says, actually, she's already dead. He goes and he raises the little girl from the dead. Jesus shows he has power over death. P people come up to him and, and just this one woman who's had this chronic disease, bleeding disease, just simply touches the hem of his cloak in a crowd and she's healed. These amazing things keep happening around Jesus. And, and then he invites his closest followers in on this whole thing as well. He sends them out and he, he prays over them and he gives them power, we're told, and tells them to go out and cast out demons and to heal people. And they go out and they do it. They travel to all the villages around. I mean, talk about amazing. The disciples are in the middle of this. They're in the middle of experiencing this. They're not just watching do Jesus do amazing things. They're experiencing it. And when they come back, they come together. And at this point, word is out about Jesus. So the crowds start to show up. This is a guy who heals. He casts out demons. And he's given power to his followers. So people are flocking to him. And we're told this story that 5,000 people, just, just men were counted, not even counting women and children at the time. They, they said at least 5,000 people were there and they come to hear Jesus teach. And when, when they're done teaching, the, the, the disciples say, hey, you know, we need to send these people home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, we're gonna feed them. 
And he takes all that they have, five little small loaves of bread and two fish, and he breaks them up and he begins putting them in the basket. And somehow, miraculously, there is enough to feed over 5,000 people, more than enough. Everybody got enough to eat and there were baskets of food left over. These amazing things are happening and the disciples are right in the middle of it. This is their best life now. They are hashtag winning. You know, they are, they are making it happen. They are in the middle of the Jesus movement. And it all leads up to this moment where immediately after he feeds 5,000 people, he's cast out demons, he's given power to his followers. He gathers them together and he says, who do people think that I am? All these things are happening. Who do people think that I am. And they said, well, there's a lot of room and you know, people don't really know. And he looks at them and he says, who, no, now how do you, who do you think that I am? And Peter being Peter speaks up first and he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the savior of the world. The one we've been waiting for essentially is what he says. This is the moment. This is everything that, that has happened up to this point has led them to this, this conclusion that this man is the person that they've been waiting for. And if you think about it just for a second, if you put your, yourself in the middle of this group of fir- these first followers of Jesus, these are simple people. These are regular blue collar kind of guys. They're not educated. Their life was pretty boring before and they've been invited into something they cannot even possibly fathom or understand. They've seen people healed. They've seen people raised from the dead. They themselves have been given power to do things they would have never thought they would have had the opportunity to do. And now Jesus comes and he asks this question, who do you think I am? And they know, they know in the core of who they are, this is him. This this guy's connected to God in a way that I, I don't think anyone ever has been. And I believe he is the savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And Peter speaks the words that they're all thinking. And we're going to pick up the story right after this amazing profession of faith in who Jesus is. We're today going to be in chapter 9, and we're going to pick up the story, uh, chapter 9 of Luke. So uh, picking up in verse 21, that's page 723, by the way, on the Bibles in your seats, or you can flip to it if you want to. Um, And we're going to pick it up right after this amazing moment where the disciples have been asked, who do you think I am? And they've responded in faith. We think you're the Messiah, that you are the Christ. And here's how Jesus responds immediately after their profession in him. Here's what he says to them. Verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? Look, look at what's going, look at what's happening here. Everything is up and to the right. Everything is getting better. What, what do you mean you're going to be arrested and that you're going to be killed? What, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And, and what do you mean by being raised to life? But he wasn't finished. He continued, verse 23, he said, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or to forfeit their very self? Now, wait, 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 Jesus. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, you invited us into this and, and it's been nothing but good things. I mean, you have control over the power of nature. You, you have the power over death. How could anything bad possibly happen as long as we're with you? What are you talking about? And you know, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but I read a book and um, you're putting a lot of negative energy out into the universe right now. And I don't know if you knew this, but if you say something negative like that, it actually will come back and it'll come to pass. So you might just want to start making some more positive I am comments. I am the son of God. I am the person who can control the storm. I am the person who, who heals death. Maybe you need to be a bit more positive, Jesus. Jesus just wouldn't let it go. They moved on and the miracles kept coming, but something was different in Jesus. Something had shifted. He had begin, begun to bring out something and share it with the people who were closest to him that was core to who he was and why he was here and what his life was about. Jesus kept coming back to this idea that he was going to die. Skipping ahead a little bit down to verse 43 as the miracles are continuing to take place, something miraculous happens. And, and it says, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they didn't grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And then an argument started among the disciples as to who to which one of them would be the greatest. So again, Jesus references this dark future and, and we get this parenthetical expression, kind of this, this little commentary from Luke, who, again, Luke didn't know Jesus. He didn't follow him. He, he followed him later. So he's getting to know all of these men and women who were close to Jesus and, and saw these things happen. So he probably heard this from them. They didn't know what was going on. So he's looking back and, and with, the, with the view of hindsight to know where the story is going. He says, when Jesus was talking about these things, this, the disciples admitted they just didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what all this was about. They were just clueless. They're so clueless that they actually begin to fight among themselves about which one of them is going to be the greatest. You know, when Jesus comes into his kingdom, when he, when people, when he finally overthrows Rome and he takes over and everybody sees that he's king, who's going to be the greatest among us? This is how clueless his first followers were. They'd been with Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances. They'd been in the middle of a storm and they'd seen him rescue them from the storm. They could never imagine that Jesus might actually be guiding them into a storm on purpose. But that's exactly what was happening. Verse 51, this is kind of the hinge point of the book of Luke where we read verse 51, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now here's what that means. And in the telling of Jesus's life story up to this point, Luke has been very concerned about relaying all of the stories about who Jesus is about his power, about the miracles, the nature of his birth, everything that certified him as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Christ. And it leads up to this point where even his closest followers, where he asks them and they profess, yes, that's who we think, we know that's who you are. We've seen what you've done. 
And then this secondary mission begins to come out, this secondary idea that, that actually, you know what, it's not going to be all about winning. It's not going to be all about healing people and crowds and high fives and power and casting out demons. Actually, I'm heading to Jerusalem. There's a, a phrase, an, an idiom that gets used here. Luke is telling this story and he uses this Semitic idiom, which I guess was a turn of phrase at the time, that he set his face, which means he resolutely determined that that's where he was headed. That was his destination, Jerusalem, the place where he would finally tick off the religious leaders enough that they would arrest him, they would persecute him, beat him, and eventually execute him. This is where he's heading. From this point forward, it's as if something shifted in Jesus. And he becomes more pointed. He becomes more controversial, more challenging, even to the point as as he interacts with people who are coming to follow him, who he's been so welcoming up to this point. Everybody comes. He begins to challenge people who are coming and wanting to follow him, saying, make sure you know what you're signing up for. Make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Verse 57, it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. It's, it's as if Jesus is looking at this guy who's coming to him and saying, you know what? It's not all going to be about healings and demon, casting out demons and crowds and lots of food and high fives and excitement. From here on out, things are going to get more difficult. So you just need to make sure you know where this train is headed. And oh, by the way, if you didn't miss it, I'm homeless. <laughs> who's in? Like, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to tick off the ruling religious establishment. They're going to arrest me and persecute whoever is with me, and I'm going to get killed, and you're going to get scattered, and they might kill you too. Who's in? Who's up for this? And Jesus is basically saying, you got to know where this is going. We're heading to Jerusalem, and things are not going to be easy. Jesus had to make it clear that following him wasn't going to be about things always going their way, wasn't going to be always about winning, wasn't going to always be about getting what they wanted and avoiding pain. Sometimes you're in the boat with Jesus and the storm comes and Jesus calms the storms. Other times Jesus is a crazy boat captain with full throttle right in the middle of the storm and the boat sinks and you go down with it. Here's the thing. Either way, what Jesus is trying to convey, either way is that you want to be in the boat with him because he's in the boat. He's there, the source of life, the one who is able to have power over the elements, the one who's able to have power over death, the one who's power, able to have power over principalities of evil and all the forces of evil that we don't understand. You want to be close to him, even if he's leading you into something that's incredibly difficult, because where Jesus is, that's where life is. Look back at what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or to forfeit their very self? And this is the important part of following Jesus that gets left out of religious self-help. Does God love us? 
Absolutely, 100%. Did he send his son to die for us, to show us the way to experience life? Absolutely, 100%. Does he want you to follow Jesus? Does he want us to follow Jesus and to experience the kind of joy and peace and all the things that come from being close to Jesus? 100%, totally. Will following him eventually be painful, disruptive to your life and difficult? Absolutely, 100%. No question about it. Will he he eventually ask you to forego your best life now in order to be part of what he's doing in the world, to sacrifice some of the things that you enjoy now for an abundant kind of life that extends into eternity? Yes, following Jesus will eventually cost you something. Jesus made it clear, whoever wants to hold on to their life to simply focus on avoiding pain and experiencing pleasure will actually lose all of those things they work so hard to hold on to. But anyone who lets go of those things and gets into the boat with him and says, I don't know where the boat's going, but I know that the only true life is found with you. Jesus, I'm in, let's go. Crazy boat captain, let's go. Wherever this boat is heading, I want to go with you. And just to be clear, this is not about trying to earn favor with Jesus or impress him. There is only one savior of the world and we are not him. This is not about us taking on the burdens of the world and feeling responsible, fixing and changing everything. Jesus is already in the process of doing that. The question is, are we joining him in what he's doing or are we staying at a safe distance because that looks difficult and dangerous and painful and I don't want to have any part of it. And what are we missing out on by avoiding those situations? One of my uh, heroes of the faith, um, a guy that's really impacted my life and my faith from a, from a distance, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian who lived during World War II. And uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he contrasts two different views of God's grace, um, the way that God shows his favor and his love to us. He contrasts what he calls cheap grace, this idea that we simply believe and that, that God loves us and he accepts us and that, that, that there comes with that no cost to this idea of, of costly grace, the grace which calls us to follow even when it gets difficult. Listen to Bonhoeffer's words from his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. It says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. And what I love about Bonhoeffer is he didn't just write these words. He lived them. So Bonhoeffer lived during a time of the rise of National Socialism and the Nazi Party. And he was a a teacher. He was a a theologian, a professor. And he had the opportunity to get out. He left Germany when he saw that things were getting difficult when he saw that the church, the national church of Germany was complicit with, with, with Nazi, the Nazis and with Hitler, he left and he came to America. He actually traveled abroad. He ended up in America. And as things continued to go, as he saw that, that, 
that Hitler took power and he saw where Germany was going and he saw that, that there were people who were suffering in resistance, who were who trying to work against what, what Hitler was doing. From America, he said, I, I feel like Jesus is leading me back to go back into the, the place that I call my homeland. Because if, I, if I'm not part of the suffering of what's going on now with the church and with the people who are remaining faithful, I can't be part of rebuilding afterwards. And so he goes back and he's part of the underground church. And he teaches and, and he, he preaches to people and he helps lead this underground movement of people who are resisting the national church, which was complicit with the Nazis. He even gets involved with the resistance and he's part of a, of a plot to try and assassinate Hitler, which ends up getting him arrested in 1943. And then in 1945, just days before the Allies would storm into the, the prison camp where he was being held, Bonhoeffer was executed. He gave his life for this idea of following Jesus, even into the difficult circumstances of his life. Now, now here's the thing. Bonhoeffer never wanted to be a martyr. He never set out to want to give his life. He didn't want to die. He wanted to experience pleasure and avoid pain as much as you or as much as me. But when the circumstances of his life presented him with a question, will you stay apart and stay away from where God is at work, from where Jesus is working in your country with the people that you know and the people that you love? Will you stay distant from that or will you come and will you join? And Bonhoeffer knew enough to know, I don't know where, how this is gonna end up, but that's where Jesus is and that's where he wants me to be. And so he went and was willing even to, game, to give his life. That's the kind of faith, that's the kind of trust that I want to have in following Jesus. Now, the fact is that most of us here today, we're, we're not gonna probably not going to face those kind of circumstances. Could be wrong, but most of us probably aren't going to face the kind of situation that will cost us our life for being faithful to following the way of Jesus. We might, but it's probably not the way it's going to go. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to lead us into circumstances or that he doesn't call us to join him in places that are difficult and hard. Maybe for you, that's moving towards people in your life or in our city whose lives are complicated or difficult. Get, getting really involved with some of the families, the homeless families at Joshua Station, beyond just going and serving on a Saturday, but really getting involved in their lives to know that their lives are complicated and they're people and people can't be fixed because they're not problems, but to be with them because Jesus is with them. Maybe it's for some of you, I know it's, it's moving into the foster care system and saying, these are kids that are vulnerable and I can't know that I could help and do nothing. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's, it's in your workplace. Maybe it's looking at and being honest about, about unethical or, or dishonest practices or maybe even illegal practices that are taking place and saying, you know what? I can't just let this go by. I have to say something. I have to resist this, even if it costs you your job. Maybe Jesus will cause you as a student to move closer to the person in your school who people make fun of, who eats lunch alone every day. And maybe that'll cost you your reputation. Maybe it'll cause people to think you're not very cool and it'll cost you that. I don't know what it is for each of you. It's different depending on where we are and the opportunities that God has given us. We're all in different places and we're all still learning. Wherever you are today on this journey of trying to follow Jesus, we're all figuring it out. And there's plenty of times we're gonna opt out of getting in the boat because it feels like it's just too much. 
But the journey of following Jesus is that when those invitations come, we want to have the courage to get in the boat. We want to have the courage to be there because Jesus is there. And we don't want to miss out on what he's doing. Again, this isn't about us missing out on saving the world because Jesus is already doing that. It's what are we missing by playing it safe? If there's one concern that I have for us as a church community, for myself, it is that our lives are really pretty good. We're all doing pretty well. And that we would, that we would elevate our comfort and our joy and our happiness and all the good things that we have over the possibility of getting messy and getting involved in the things that Jesus is doing around us already. And so as we close up today, I, I just want to pray that, that, that God would give us real clarity and honesty to look in the mirror and to say, are there ways that I can begin to move into some things that are complicated and difficult in the world around me, in the places that God has already placed me and with the people that he's already put into my life? Can I have real clarity, God, to see that? And, and God, give me courage courage to get into the boat, courage to go with you wherever you're going, because wherever you are, that's where life is found. Let's pray as we close and ask that God would help us to do that. <clears throat> God, it's a whole lot easier to preach a sermon about this than it is to live it. And uh, I just confess the ways that I um, regularly play it safe and uh, avoid getting in that boat. But you are gracious, God, and you are accepting of where we are. And uh, you've given us faith. Um, you've given us belief. Help us in our unbelief. Help us where we doubt, where we lack courage, where we're unwilling to follow where you're at work, to go to the places and to the people that you care about. May we see those people and those circumstances in our lives. God, give us real clarity to see those things. Sometimes, God, it's that we don't want to see Help us to want to see and give us eyes uh, to see the things that you are already doing around us. And then God, we need courage. Um, we just admit that it's part of who we are. Part of our selfishness is, is this idea that we, we just wanna avoid pain and we wanna experience only the things that are good. Free us from the need to architect our lives, to, to control our lives, um, to avoid pain and only experience pleasure. May we be willing to lose and let go of what we cannot lose. And that is the life that you've given us, God, that as we follow you, there's something that you give us that, that just can't be had by our own control, our own seeking out of pleasure and avoiding pain. So God, give us courage to follow you wherever you lead, even if it's hard. And we pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.